All right, so uh, we are in the middle of a series that we're pretty excited about, having some fun with, called Jesus Said... What? Exactly right. And uh, just these startling things that Jesus said that uh, just a simple read, we might not quite get the power of, but when we dive into what Jesus said and how shocking the things that he said were that give freedom to us and give freedom, frankly, to the world, uh, it really is pretty life-changing. Today, we're not gonna talk about so much what Jesus said, but what Jesus did, because here's what he did that did get him in a lot of trouble, is he included women. Jesus included women. Now, now we would say, well, of course he included women. Why wouldn't he include women? Well, back then, it was stunning that he had so many women on his team, so many women on his core team that had such influence and who led the way. And so today we're gonna do a little co-teaching of really the celebration of women from the first chapter of the Bible, all the way through the Old Testament, the ministry of Jesus, and deep into the New Testament, and what that means for us today. So it's gonna be a great time. It's gonna be awesome. I mean, we're gonna take a look primarily at the Gospels in the New Testament. Many of us are familiar with the 12 disciples. We won't test Scott, because he already failed the test this morning, but many of you could probably list the 12 disciples by name if you grew up in church or grew up in Sunday school. Don't worry, I'd fail too. Okay. <laughs> we're on equal footing here. I don't think I could do it. But we, we're familiar with them. We're not as familiar with the fact that there were not only 12 disciples in the life and the ministry of Jesus. There were lots of disciples, many of whom were women, many of whom are listed by name. And these are co-laborers with Jesus. These are supporters of his ministry, so, well, uh, women who were a part of the ministry of Jesus. And so we'll talk about that a little bit today, later. But I think what we're going to do first is we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning, to the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. Yep, so let's go back in time when God first revealed his heart for creation. And we see this in Genesis 1, the first page of the Bible. It's something we might have heard so often that we may have lost the power of what's being said here, specifically in the ancient context. So here it is, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you read sort of the broader um, verses here, he is saying this twice. I'm making humankind in my image. He repeats it twice. Then he says male and female and repeats it twice. So God is trying to drill something into our heads here. He's trying to drill in this unique identity that all of humankind is made in his image. No other creature is made in the image of God. And there's lots of talk and debate about what that might mean, but essentially we have this unique ability to connect with God relationally. The unique ability to think outside of ourselves, to think about eternity, to think about a relationship with our creator, and to really reflect the creator in so many ways. And God makes it very clear this is male and female, equally made in the image of God. Now, let's assume this particular bit of truth was given to humankind 3,000 years ago, roughly. Yeah. I mean, that is astounding. That's a God said what moment, that, that how can you possibly teach this truth that male and female are made equally because at the time, women were little more than property. Mm -hmm. And God makes it very clear, shouting from the rooftops, men and women are equally made in my image, should be given equal respect and equal dignity at all times in all places. To put it to you this way, man and woman, created in every way equals before God and before each other as the expression of God's image. 
And that should give us all just great pause to say, God, thank you that I'm made in this way. I'm made as a reflection of your image and that we together, male and female, are made in your image. Because what God is all about is bringing us together the way God is Father, Son, Spirit, yet one. He creates men and women uh, plural, and yet one in God's image, one in our expression of who God is. It really wants us to give respect and dignity to one another to experience the oneness of God himself. Yeah, this is so important to our understanding of who we are created in Christ and our understanding of those around us and who they are and their identity in Christ. One of the things that I have found really helpful as I read through the book of Genesis specifically is an understanding of the Hebrew word ezer. So we're gonna do a little Hebrew lesson this morning. And the reason for this is when we read some of this at face value, it can appear one way. When we dig deeper into the original language, all of a sudden it opens up this world of insight and understanding that wasn't there before. So in one Genesis account, we see God creating Adam and deciding that it's not good for Adam to be alone. Do you all remember that? And then he creates Eve, And the words that are translated there are to be a suitable helper for Adam. Many of you probably grew up hearing that. Well, when you hear that she was created to be a suitable helper, you kind of have an idea in your mind of what that must look like and how that must play out. When we look at the actual word ezer, that word helper, in the Hebrew, it looks different than the way that it looks when we just read it in English. And so I wanna give you the words of theologian Kenneth Bailey. So this is not my words, this is not my opinion. Um, This is him talking to us about this word helper that's used to describe Eve. He says, where are we? Oh, we see in one Genesis account that Eve was created to be this easer, this uh, helper. And it's been quite often used to indicate that um, we have different roles that men and women are created uniquely and different. Maybe men are created to lead and women are created to help and to support. What he writes further is that the word ezer in Hebrew is often used for God when God comes to help or save Israel. So this is an important piece. So often when we're trying to figure out the meaning of a word, it's helpful for us to look at where else is this word used in the scriptures? Well, this word, ezer, is also used throughout the Old Testament to describe God coming to help and save Israel. The word does not refer, he says, to a lowly assistant to the boss, but rather to a powerful figure who comes to help and save someone who's in trouble and can't manage alone. And Ezer is a capable, powerful, intelligent ally. This changes the dynamic of this word significantly, doesn't it? When we understand, when we mine the depths of the word. Now, this reminds me of car rides and our family. Am I the only one whose kids ask the most existential questions in the car? (laughs) Is it just me? I mean, things like, what does God look like? Where did God come from? Where did God come from? I mean, just the questions that you kind of are going, I just am trying to get us to school (laughs) on time. So I can remember several times when my oldest two kids were younger and the existential big question that would come from the back seat was, hey dad, who's the boss, you or mom? (laughs) Trying to start a fight. Oh, have any of you ever been asked that question by your kids? Um, Have any of you been asked that question while your spouse was not in the room? Did you answer it different? I don't know. So, but as kids, we want to know. We want to know who's the boss? 
Who's in charge? And what we have begun to help our kids see and understand is, well, we're both the boss, but we're not the boss of one another. We're partners. We share leadership together, and we follow Jesus together. And they still, in the early years, were kind of like, but, but really, though, who's the boss? <laughs> because it's just as helpful, I think, in our linear thinking to have this hierarchical, but really what is being described here is a partnership. It's shared leadership. It's a lot harder than a boss, but it's a beautiful representation of the image of God. Exactly. I mean, it's almost like who's, you know, when you're talking about the triune God, well, who's the boss? It's, it's really this idea that the plural are one. And it is harder, like you said, but it is the most beautiful thing, right? When human beings can, uh, can partner together and, and lead together in a way that really complements each other's strengths and, and weaknesses, each uniquely uh, can really say, hey, we are one. Uh, and we're going to, to have shared values and we're going to have a shared goal and we're going to do this together. That really is the Genesis 1 vision. And this world has not yet adopted the Genesis 1 vision. Even sadly, churches and religious organizations have not yet adopted this vision. Uh, marriages have not yet adopted this vision. Sometimes companies are still a little bit imbalanced, right? And so wherever we can adopt the Genesis 1 vision of equality, men and women made in the image of God, uh, this, this easer mentality that we're coming alongside really to, to bring the fullness of God's uh, wisdom and the fullness of God's mission to this earth together, male and female, that's what we're striving for. Now, um, <clears throat> this might seem a little bit different, but when you look in the Old Testament, you see that God is protecting women and elevating women. There's this interesting teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 24, where God gives a certificate of divorce. And we might just read right over that. Okay, God gives a certificate of divorce, allowing divorce in, in certain instances. Um, but why is there a certificate given? Well, it's for the protection of women. Because in a patriarchal society, which early Israel was and many ancient civilizations were, women could have been cast aside like property. And God says, you will not cast aside women or children like property. If, if, if there's going to be a divorce, a woman would have a certificate to prove to the world around her that she is no longer bound to the husband, which means she's free to marry again. She's pre free to provide for her family and for her kids. And so God has always said, listen, you will not mistreat women. You will not use whatever power, strength, authority you might have to mistreat women. God is always defending women. But beyond defending women, God is elevating women to the place of influence and leadership. And there are powerful examples of this happening. We look at uh, Miriam. Miriam is Moses' sister. And unfortunately, we hear a lot about Moses. Rarely do we hear about Miriam. Uh, that's not necessarily an accident. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But uh, Miriam is a leader in Israel. Moses is kind of holding down the law and the order of Israel. Miriam is a leader and an influencer of the entire nation as a, as a prophet. So she's speaking the voice of God, speaking the words of God, and as a worship leader. She's leading the entire nation of Israel in worship. She's an incredible leader. Then you have Deborah. Uh, Deborah is a, a judge. So if you read the book of Judges, you read about uh, several of these judges that are ruling, and Deborah rules over all of Israel. And she's a powerful woman. She's a strong woman, and she's leading the nation of Israel in powerful ways. 
Now, um, you mentioned earlier that there's a specific role in the judges, which is, um, you know, something that I think we need to understand, right? Absolutely. Well, I don't know about all of you, but, you know, early on when I was reading about judges in the Old Testament, I had a picture of a modern-day judge in a courtroom where two litigators are going back and forth, and maybe you have a jury, but this is not what we're talking about in the Old Testament, right? Exactly. So keep in mind, during the period of the judges, uh, there is no king, there is no queen. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that God would be their king, and then they would have these judges, a, a single judge really, who would rule over everything. If there was a, a, a disconnect, if there was a conflict, if two tribes were about to go to war with each other, this judge would step in and bring the rule of God over the entire nation. So essentially they were acting sort of as a monarch. God is the monarch, but they were the voice. They were the prophet's voice. They were the leadership voice over the entire nation. And uh, Deborah, certainly a, a woman, uh, very strong, very powerful, very confident woman leading over all of Israel. And then we have the story of, uh, of Esther. And Esther is an absolutely beautiful story because here is this, this woman, this young woman who, who really starts as a, as a victim of this, uh, of this monarch, and, and yet she's made aware of her very unique place. And she has the decision to make. Am I going to risk myself and, and per perhaps even sacrifice myself with all of my you know, standing and position, and there was some privilege involved in there as well? Am I going to risk all of that, including her own life, to save the people of Israel? And she chooses to risk it all, and with strength, and with leadership, and with poise, and with uh, incredible wisdom, she saves the nation of Israel, which is a key story in the Old Testament that really paves the way for the coming of Christ himself. So this is so important that we're having this conversation. Uh, 20 years now that I have spent in church almost every Sunday, went to Biola for school, and it really was about 12 to 15 years into that experience that I started to listen and learn and pay attention to the stories of the women that we're talking about today. And we're just able to scratch the surface. And so when we, when we talk about women like Deborah and women like Miriam and women like we're gonna talk about in just a moment in the New Testament, it's so important for our perspectives as people of God, as followers of Jesus to understand the ways that God has um, used women to advance his mission and his cause in the world. And I don't know about all of you, but even as a mom, like I asked my kids if they wanted to sit in the first service this morning before they went over to kids and youth because I want them to hear these stories sooner in their life than I did. Um, it's important not just for those of us who are women, but it's important for those who are men as well. Absolutely, because uh, you have in religious circles, and this is common among most religions, is they tend to be a, a patriarchal, uh, because some of the ancient texts definitely lean in that direction. The Old Testament, frankly, does as well, right? There's, um, there's no way to sugarcoat that. You read the Old Testament, there's some things in there to wrestle with, no doubt about that, which we do as a church, and we tackle a lot of these things head on. So there are patriarchal elements in the Old Testament. What that does is kind of bleed over to, a, to patriarchal religious experiences. And so you have millions and millions of young girls growing up where they're only hearing about the stories of the men, only seeing male leadership, and it does something. It, it essentially says to young women, you're probably not going to be welcome at this certain level of influence or this level of leadership, and there's a limit on what you, uh, on what you can do uh, here and what you can do in the kingdom of God. So it's good and very healthy to not only take this time on Mother's Day, but throughout uh, our teaching um, from the children's ministry all the way through and on Sunday morning 
to really have a, a far more balanced approach to God's vision for male and female together living in the equality of God's vision. Absolutely. You know, and part of that is we have cultural and theological reasons why things are the way they are and why we've only come so far to the point where we've come. So we have in the Old Testament these incredible female heroes of the faith. And then we hit this time that's called the intertestamental period. Try to say that five times fast. <laughs> so this is the time, it's about four to 600 years in between the final writings of the Old Testament and when Jesus arrives. And during that time, we can look back and we can see something that religious leaders joked about. They called the bleeding Pharisees. Now, I don't wanna know what you're picturing right now, okay? This was a Jewish religious joke about bleeding Pharisees. And so um, what I want you to picture is a staunch, serious, respectable Jewish leader walking through the town. And all of a sudden, you have no idea why, but this respectable, staunch, serious man closes his eyes, but he keeps moving and he's walking and he's tripping over stuff and he's running into people and he's running into walls and he falls down and he gets bruised and broken and maybe bloodies his nose. This is where this joke, this phrase, the bleeding Pharisees comes from. Do you wanna know why he closed his eyes all of a sudden? Because a woman happened to come on the scene. You see, during this time, it's not only that men wouldn't speak to a woman outside of their home, it's not only that they wouldn't touch a woman outside of their spouse, they wouldn't even allow themselves to lay eyes on a woman. And so there became this religious joke amongst Jewish leaders about the bleeding Pharisees. So we see this treatment of women, not only in Jewish culture and Jewish writing, but we also see it in Greek culture and Greek writing. And so this is the world that Jesus came into. And it was a joke at the time. Obviously, as we hear that joke, it's disturbing. It is it's awful that women were so discounted that they couldn't be seen figuratively. They were not seen in areas of influence or leadership in politics, in the public square or in religion, but, but they wouldn't even lay eyes on, on these women. And so it, it's an injustice that Jesus had to correct. And he does so powerfully. And in fact, in, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the very first story we see is a story of a woman who's exalted. And this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I don't think we give her enough credit in, in these parts either. Uh, but here's this young woman who is faced with this incredibly difficult um, situation. She's a, a young woman who's not married, who's with child, and she's told she's going to be giving birth to the very son of, of God. And all of the shame around that puts her in a very, very difficult position. And, and the consequences of that were extreme and extraordinary for her and for Joseph and for the family and for their, their village of Nazareth. And so uh, what ends up happening is she gets to a point where she says, God, let it be according to your will. Mm -hmm. And this is this heroic moment for her as well, because here's this difficult uh, situation happening with a woman who wasn't seen, a woman who was uh, very poor, a woman who was a peasant, and she becomes the first hero of the New Testament. And the first hero of the gospel was this young mother. And what an incredible way to introduce not just this, this recaptured vision of equality with men and women, but to introduce Jesus himself through his mother, Mary. 
Absolutely. And then all throughout the Gospels, if you begin to look through this lens that we're looking through this morning, you're going to see that Jesus does the opposite of what the bleeding Pharisees did. We see Jesus time and time again, and you've shared some of these stories even in this series so far. He sees women. He listens to women. He speaks to them. He sits with them. He has the longest theological conversation recorded in the Gospels with not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And so what I want us to to focus in on today when it comes to Jesus and what he did and what he said is a story that we read in Luke chapter 13. So this is Jesus. And it says, he was teaching in one of the meeting places on the Sabbath. And there was a woman present, so twisted and bent over with arthritis that she couldn't even look up. She had been afflicted with this for 18 years. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over. Woman, you're free. He laid hands on her and suddenly she was standing straight and tall, giving glory to God. The meeting place president, furious because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, he said to the congregation, six days have been defined as work days. Come on one of the six if you want to be healed, but not on the seventh, not on the Sabbath. But Jesus shot back, you frauds, each Sabbath, every one of you regularly unties your cow or donkey from its stall, leads it out for water and thinks nothing of it. So why isn't it all right for me to untie this daughter of Abraham and lead her from the stall where Satan has had her tied these 18 years? Now, we don't notice it at first glance or the first 25 times we read through the story, but this is in fact a Jesus said what (laughs) moment. And we're gonna talk about why in just a minute. This is a major Jesus said what, Jesus did what moment. And then it tells us when he put it that way, his critics were left looking quite silly and red-faced, and the congregation was delighted and cheered him on. Now, why is this story so important? Why are we focusing? We could pick so many stories today. Why are we focused in on this one? Well, two reasons. One, Jesus puts this woman in the spotlight, down in the very front of the synagogue, and by doing so, shattered the religious leader's worldview. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, and if you've missed this series, you gotta go back and listen. It's been so good, so life-giving. Scott talked about the temple and how women were in a separate part of the temple. They were behind screens because again, leading Pharisees, you can't see them. But what we're seeing here is Jesus in the meeting place, seeing this woman and not only seeing her, but calling out to her and then bringing her forward and putting her in the spotlight. Jesus did what? And then it gets better. Jesus calls her daughter of Abraham. I don't know about you, but the first 25 times I read that, I had no idea what that meant, and I had no clue that it was significant. But it's incredibly significant, and I'm gonna tell you why in just a moment. He's communicating to everyone there that she is an equal heir with her male counterparts to everything that God has promised. And now I'm gonna quote another theologian to help us all understand why this is so important. It's so good. So this is David Hamilton. He says, there was no precedent for Jesus's use of the phrase daughter of Abraham. Nowhere in rabbinical teaching was an individual woman called daughter of Abraham. 
Jewish men were often called and referred to as sons of Abraham, but never women. Everyone knew that women, they weren't heirs of Abraham in the way that men were. But Jesus, but Jesus lavished this term on a woman and an old, used-to-be crippled woman at that. Jesus said, what? He's, he's not only making a scene and making a point, but he's, he's calling out to her, you are an equal heir to the promises of God in the same way that everyone else in this room is. I mean, it just is such a beautiful picture. It is, and shatters every cultural norm that had women as less than. And really, Jesus is teaching back into the Genesis 1 vision, men and women equally made in the image of God. And so he's correcting an injustice. He's correcting where there was marginalization. And he's saying, you're invited, come. And then he's equipping them and freeing them and watching them and celebrating uh, how they thrive and how they lead. To put it this way, in the ministry of Jesus, women were included and trusted with the ministry and the message included and trusted. That was not the cultural norm, but Jesus says the cultural norms have got to get fixed. So he led in, in such a way that invited women, included women, equipped women, and released women to the fullness of their gifts. And this is such an incredible thing to celebrate then. It's an incredible thing to celebrate now. Um, in Jesus' ministry, we see in Luke chapter 8 that there are women listed by name, again, which is just incredible, and specifically some of the things that they contributed. Luke 8, 1. Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing uh, the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. So Jonah was one of the women who were listed here. Uh, he lists three of them in particular and calls out how they contributed to their ministry, how they led in their ministry. Now, uh, Jonah was a, um, a, a very specific person of some status culturally. Uh, she lived in a palace. Uh, she and her husband had political authority, uh, communal authority, and she had a lot of money. And she said, you know what? I'm go going to lead in the mission of Jesus. I'm going to tie myself, my soul, my personal mission to the mission of Jesus, and I'm going to give my resources to the mission of Jesus. And she's listed as someone who, who fueled the mission of Jesus to the point where I think it would be very safe to say that if it wasn't for this group of women the ministry of Jesus would not be funded. They would not be able to travel where they traveled and do what they did. And would we even have the ministry of Jesus if it wasn't for the selflessness, the leadership, and the resourcing from these ladies? Um, it was incredible to see how Jesus enfolded women into his ministry and released them to use their gifts. Absolutely. And so we see this, and then we see the resurrection. Yeah. And, I mean, if there was ever going to be... A a message from God through the gospels to us that women matter to the ministry of God, matter to the message of God, it would be that he invited and allowed women to be the eyewitnesses to the most important moment in history, the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And then not only would they be the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, but then they would be asked and tasked with proclaiming and sharing what they witnessed, proclaiming the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. This was culturally and theologically not okay. This was a tremendous risk oh, yeah. at the time. So, you know, culturally, the testimony of women was not allowed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't taken seriously in courts, even in the Old Testament. 
And so it was uh, something that Jesus had to correct, not just in the course of his life, but after his death and the resurrection. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Word of God specifically says the first to eyewitness the resurrection are women. The first to preach the message of the resurrection were women. This is God intentionally saying, listen, we've got to correct the course. We've got to consider each other uh, as equals. And so it's a wonderful thing to celebrate, right, in the kingdom of heaven. And we also celebrate this not just at the resurrection, but in the early church. So here's this early church coming together around the message of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the forgiveness of God through Jesus, the love of God through Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and this, this church is being put together. People who are going to carry this gospel good news message and, and really deliver this message to the world. And we see that, yes, there are men who are involved and men who are leading, but there's also women who are leading as well. And we can't just breeze by this. In the New Testament, early on, there are deaconesses, women serving as deacons. Now, that might be a strange word uh, to a lot of you who may not have been raised in, in particular churches, but in the Bible, there are two forms of leaders. There are the elders, and then there are the deacons. The elders do more of the, like the teaching, preaching. The, uh, the, uh, the deacons um, are serving the church and making sure the church is well cared for. And men and women are both serving as deacons. Uh, here at Rancho, we've got a great group of men and women serving as deacons, caring for the church, caring for the members of the church, walking alongside people who are in need. And from the very beginning, uh, women were involved as deacons. You also see a celebration of women co-workers, uh, particularly in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who was the first church planter, and he wrote half of the New Testament, 13 letters in the New Testament, and in nearly every letter, he is thanking co-workers or, or co-laborers in the gospel, and in those lists, it includes women. It does. And so, you know, if you've not read through the scriptures with this lens before, it's going to come alive for you in a pretty significant way. So as we're reading through the letters of Paul right here, what we begin to notice is he lists 39 co-laborers or co-ministers. A fourth of those individuals are women. We have people like Priscilla and Phoebe and Chloe, just to name a few. These are important people who help to advance this brand new church, this brand new mission and message of Jesus. Yep. And just like in the intertestamental period where we seem to default to more of a patriarchal view, the church can sometimes do that as well. The church can sort of default to a patriarchal view. So as God is lifting up women from Genesis 1 all the way through the Old Testament, as the life of Jesus begins by lifting up Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is there with him at the beginning and women with him at the crucifixion and women the first witnessing and preaching the resurrection of Jesus and the early church lifting up women and freeing women to the fullness of leadership, um, we also see that sometimes in religious circles we go back to, 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 uh, to patriarchal approach. So we have to keep kind of fighting, right, for the Genesis 1 vision, for the gospel vision, for the Jesus vision of absolute equality. And one of the things I think we can celebrate the most is that there was a woman named Junia listed in Romans chapter 16 who is listed as an apostle. Now, the, the apostles are the leaders, right? These are capital A apostles. These are ones that have a title and have a role, not just overseeing a church, but overseeing clusters of churches and regions of churches. And Junia is listed as a, as a woman apostle. And for those who do click more towards um, male-only leadership, and listen, there are scriptures to wrestle with, and we're not going to deny that. But um, as people wrestle with that, they struggle with Junia to the point where even people have said, well, they must have got her name wrong. 
And it's like at some point you have to say, all right, let, let's hang on a little bit and let's really embrace from Genesis 1 to the heroes of the Old Testament, through the life and ministry of Jesus, mm-hmm. to the women at his birth and the women at his death and the women at his resurrection and the women leaders of the church, including the apostle Junia. Let's just celebrate that. And let's soak this in, male and female, together in the gospel. Yeah, that we together in partnership reflect the image of God. And we together in partnership are the ones who are invited to advance the cause of Christ through mercy and justice and love. This is, I think, I believe, and I've given my life to the vision that God has for us as human beings and as the church. And I think we see that very explicitly in Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Uh, I love the book of Galatians. It's one of my favorites. It's the Apostle Paul who's just kind of going for it. He's correcting a lot. The book of Galatians is a book of correction. And he's just saying, hey, listen, you kind of got it wrong here. You got it wrong here. You got it wrong here. Square this out. Square this away. Get this right. And one of the things he's getting right is this idea of equality. Mm-hmm. Because in every culture, in all times, so this isn't uniquely a problem for us or the West. It is all times, every culture struggles with the powerful trying to get ahead of those who might be less powerful or less loud or less strong. And, and God is continually saying, you've got to keep working towards the vision of equality, not just with gender, but in terms of socioeconomic equality, in terms of ethnic equality. And all of us need to be involved in this vision. And so as Paul is kind of correcting the record, I almost get the sense that he can't wait to write Galatians 3, 28, 29. He didn't have chapters numbered or verses numbered, but to me, it's the crescendo of the implication of the grace of God equally for everyone. Listen to what he says. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, all races and ethnicities equal. Mm -hmm. There's neither slave nor free, all economic positions equal. Mm -hmm. There is neither male nor female, male and female equal, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's just going back to Genesis chapter one. It's going back to God's vision that says, the real gospel, the real good news of God's grace is only fully realized if everyone is treated as an equal. To put it this way, the good news of God's grace freely given is truly accepted when everyone is treated as equals, every ethnicity, every economic position, women and men, all respected and treated the same. That's the vision. That's the vision for our homes. And so if we're seeing anything in our homes that's not quite you know, equal, then we can work to fix that with grace and kindness, mm-hmm. with gentleness and respect. If you're in a workplace where there's just not, there's just people that are kind of getting left behind and opportunities tend to gravitate toward one direction, we can gently and kindly and maybe sometimes firmly say, hey, it's time to make a change here. In churches, in religious environments, if we're seeing that leadership or influence tends to go to certain ethnic groups or certain, you know, donors or, or, or men, we can bring some correction there and just say, hey, I, I think we need to pay attention here. God's vision from Genesis 1 through the ministry of Jesus and beyond is about equality. And uh, Chrissy, you're going to close us in a beautiful quote and a prayer uh, over us all. And um, it's a powerful moment for us to say, hey, today we're going to celebrate women as God celebrates women. Today we're going to celebrate mothers as God celebrates mothers. And uh, we're going to honor um, the women among us. And, uh, and uh, Chrissy, uh, lead us on. Sounds good. And so women... Today, we're honoring and celebrating who you are, who God has created you uniquely to be. And more than anything, we want you to walk out of here with a fresh sense of the way that Jesus sees 
you and knows you and invites you. And, and we get that because of what we see in the Gospels. And so I think Dorothy Sayers sums it up for us best when she writes this. It's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There has never been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness, praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about woman's nature. Every time I read those words, I just have immense gratitude for the life and ministry of Jesus and what he has done for all of us. This collection of men and women, it's significant and beautiful. And so we can respond with gratitude and I think action at the same time. And so a couple of questions that I've been reflecting on this week would be, what does it look like for us to include and trust the women in our lives? And this is a question for all of us, male and female together, to include and trust the women in our families, to include and trust the women in our communities and our workplaces and in our churches, the way that Jesus included and trusted them. And then women, what does it look like to identify and trust your voice, who you are created to be in the image of God, your presence, your unique contribution to the mission of God in the world. I wonder what would happen if we spent a little bit of time being curious about those things. And so I wanna invite you to stand with me this morning. We're gonna close in a prayer over our women who are here and our women who are online before we head outside and off to celebrate with our families today. And so may you know deep in your bones that you were chosen before the foundation of the world and created in the very image of God. You are a one-of-a-kind reflection of God to your family, your friends, and your community. God has called you capable, powerful, and intelligent partner in the work of God. You have been given a set of gifts that are vital in our work together to advance the cause of Christ in our community. May you discover within yourself something of the courage of Esther, the wonder of Miriam, and the wise leadership of Deborah. May you learn to trust 
with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and learn to be present and active with the women of the Gospels, and learn to live into your unique vocation with Mary of Magdala, Joanna, Phoebe, Chloe, Priscilla, Junia, and others as your guide. God, thank you for seeing us, seeing us all, naming us and calling all of us to partner with you as you work in the world. Help us to follow your example to us. May we see and listen and respond to those who may be overlooked. May we make space for the wisdom and perspective of the vulnerable around us. And for those of us who may struggle to believe that our voice and perspective matter, would you give us a fresh vision, your vision, and courage to try a different way. Thank you, God, for our women. And for those who mother us, they are an exquisite reflection of your great love to us. And we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.